you know, I think that I might actually still be full from Thanksgiving dinner. Got some wonderful cooks in my family. They kept me well-fed. I hope yours did the same. Although full of turkey, I can say I have felt about a quart low on my Lutheranism because I haven't been with you. Boy, what a break, huh? Two weeks off. That was too long for me. I didn't like that. I missed you too much. And I am so glad to be back behind the Lutheran microphone, back with you on our adventure, diving into God's Word with Luther's small catechism. Welcome to those of you who are new to the podcast. You crazy people have shared the podcast so much that during the two weeks off, we surpassed a thousand downloads. Just think of that. We surpassed a thousand downloads. I never, in my wildest dreams, thought we would ever be here. But here we are, you and me, worshiping our way to the end of the world (laughs) as we read Luther's small catechism. As many of you have downloaded and shared the podcast, not quite as many have said hello yet. I would love to hear from you. Podcast at twicethelutheran.org. That's the uh, email address. Would love to hear from you. Podcast at twicethelutheran.org. We left off last time, it seems like forever ago, but good news for us, the Ten Commandments haven't changed in a couple thousand years, and they didn't change during our Thanksgiving break. So they are still the same. And we left off last time with the fifth commandment. We were wrapping that one up. Here's the fifth commandment. One more time for your review and your edification. You shall not murder. What does this mean? We should fear and love God that we do not hurt or harm our neighbor in his body, but help and befriend him in every bodily need. Now, I said last time that we would wrap up so that when we came back on the podcast, we could just start with the big commandment. I don't know. It's not like the big commandment, but it seems to be the one most in view in 2021, the sixth commandment. But before before we do that, I felt like I gave a little bit of short shrift at the very end of the last commandment. We kind of capped it off a little bit early, so I just want to backpedal just for a minute. If you're following along in your catechism, and you certainly don't have to, but if you are, I'm going to back up to page 78. And this is question 63 in the catechism. It says, how does God's word serve as a mirror showing us that we are also guilty of breaking this commandment. Remember, you might be thinking, this is an easy commandment, Pastor. I haven't stabbed anybody or shot anybody. Therefore, I have kept the sixth commandment. But listen to what God says here in Galatians 5. The works of the sinful flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, 
impurity, complete lack of restraint, idolatry, and sorcery. So in those ones, you've kind of heard like Sixth Commandment, impurity, sexual morality, lack of restraint, idolatry, and sorcery. Those take us all the way back to like the First and Second Commandments and Third Commandments. But now listen to this. Hatred, discord, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissensions, Heresies, envies, murders, drunkenness, orgies, and things similar to these, I warn you, just as I also warned you before, that those who continue to do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Which means that just by keeping ourselves from murdering, by the way, that's a good thing, (laughs) don't kill anybody, but even if you've been successful in not killing anybody, That doesn't mean you've kept the Sixth Commandment. Hatred, discord, jealousy, outbursts of anger, dissensions. Remember that this commandment is forbidding harm to the body. And part of the body, part of the makeup of a person, is their emotional needs as well, their psychological needs as well. So you can easily harm somebody emotionally with emotional abuse you can easily murder somebody with your words psychological abuse so in the fifth commandment the lord is directing us to take care of each other and each other's needs physical needs yes feed your family etc but also your emotional needs your psychological needs Your spiritual needs, those all come into play in part of the fifth commandment. So as usual, the the catechism shows us that we've broken the commandment, but it doesn't just leave us there and say, so get better and stop doing that and act right. That's not... Not what the command what the catechism does. The command the catechism, my goodness. I told you two weeks off was too long. I forget how to Lutheran. The catechism, that's the word I want, takes us to see our sin so that we are walked then to the foot of the cross. Question 64, how do we know that our sins against the fifth commandment are forgiven? 1 Peter 2, 22-24, he did not commit a sin. This is Jesus. And no deceit was found in his mouth. When he was insulted, he did not insult in return. Can you say that? I bet not. I can't. I know that when I've been insulted, my first instinct, get him back. But not just get him back. Get him back twice as hard, twice as good, right? You got to have the comeback. You got to defend yourself. You got to repay insult with insult. Mm, That's a sin. That's a sin against the fifth commandment. Jesus, when he suffered, he didn't make any threats. Instead, it says, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Namely, God did that. God judges justly. Back to 1 Peter, he himself carried our sins in his body on the tree so that we would be dead to sin and alive to righteousness. By his wounds, you were healed. Jesus Christ dies on the cross as a murderer. 
Jesus Christ dies on the cross as a hothead. Jesus Christ dies on the cross as the only person who ever broke the fifth commandment so that you and I would never worry about hellfire because of it. And in place, what does it say? So that we would be dead to sin and alive to righteousness. He dies for the sin. He hands us instead his perfect track record. So God now sees us as perfectly keeping the fifth commandment and thereby entering heaven. Because Jesus Christ has forgiven our sins and given us his perfect track record. How wonderful is that? That's a rhetorical question. You don't have to answer that. It's very wonderful. That's what you thought. I could tell. Now, the last thing I want to say on the fifth commandment. We talked a lot about how it's God's right to take a life, and that right belongs to God alone. Yes, he has delegated it, but finally, in the end, he is God, and he alone has the right to end life. But we didn't really talk about what hardship that brings, what grief that brings when God does end a life. In fact, when somebody dies, and I'm thinking in particular when somebody dies before their time, is what we would say, right? Dies when otherwise we would think they would live a long and healthy life. Oh, what grief is ours. Oh, what anger people can feel at God. Why? Because we feel cheated. We feel cheated at a life that, in our opinion, was cut short. And even if it wasn't cut short, sometimes we feel cheated. Here's what I can tell you. Be angry at the right person. Be angry not at God, who didn't create us to die. God did not design death, right? You go back to Genesis. This was never supposed to happen. The body and soul were never supposed to separate. So who should you be angry at? Be angry at Satan who brought it. Yes, be angry about death. Yes, be even sad at death. But be angry at the right person. Satan did this. And then rejoice. Because our God, who didn't create us to die, answers the problem of death by promising to push the undo button. He will undo our death. Death is a problem, a problem caused by Satan. And God brings a solution to it. This is the only place you can find real comfort for death in the face of death, is through Jesus Christ. Because only by faith in him is death undone. Death, from a human perspective, it's unavoidable. It's going to happen. In fact, I bet if we left it up to you to decide when somebody should die, you would say, never. Which means you agree with God. He doesn't want that. And so he has promised to undo death. And in fact, he's even taken that tragedy, that most horrible thing, and says, but now through Christ, I'm going to use it to bring you to glory. You're going to pass through death to glory. 
So be angry at death. But be angry at the right person, Satan. And then rejoice and give thanks to God because he solved the problem. By the blood of Jesus, he will undo our deaths. And we will be together again forever in glory. I think that's enough talk about murder, huh? (laughs) Enough talk about death. Let's go back again uh, to the land of the living and move our way now into the sixth commandment. And why did I say the land of the living? Because this is the commandment that talks about marriage. And we know that marriage is only for this life. So let's get into what I'm going to call sort of the, uh, the hot-button commandment of the 21st century. This is the commandment that talks not only about marriage, but about uh, God's gift of sex. All right, so we're going to have to rate uh, this podcast episode maybe PG, maybe even PG-13. But we'll keep it clean. We'll only say what God says about it. All right, so here's the sixth commandment. You shall not commit adultery. What does this mean? We should fear and love God that we lead a pure and decent life in words and actions and that husband and wife love and honor each other, that we live a pure and decent life in words and actions. So here's a question for you. Who gets to decide what equates or what what pure and decent mean? Who gets to decide that? Do we all just have to make that up so that your definition of a pure and decent life might be different than mine, might be different than somebody else's? Because by and large, that's the way society loves to treat this one. A one person's pure and decent is is not not the same as another person's pure and decent. But because you, like me, are twice the Lutheran, you know that God is the one who gets to decide what pure and decent mean. Now, you can, as with any commandment, especially with this one, you can water down the meaning and application of this commandment so that it just sort of becomes this uh, milk toast definition of like love and commitment. In fact, you'd be surprised. You know who's done that? You'd be surprised at the answer. You know who's really watered down the Sixth Commandment? The Pope. Yeah, he plays fast and loose with this one. You know, the Prince of False Doctrine there. I want to play to you. This would have been from five years ago. Um, Boy, who was Pope then? Is is uh, Is that Pope Francis? Maybe? I want you to listen carefully. I'm going to play for you a clip. And in this clip, it's, you know, I don't know what his, what his rank is. He's reading a summary of what the Pope said about the Sixth Commandment. And if you're watching the video, uh, you could see that uh, he's surrounded by a large crowd. The Pope is there seated on his throne. And uh, this guy's going to read. It's only about a minute and 20 seconds. So take a listen to uh, what the Pope says about the Sixth Commandment. And tell me why this is watered down. The following is a summary of the Holy Father's words this morning. 
Dear brothers and sisters, in our continuing catechesis on the Ten Commandments, we now turn to the Sixth Commandment, You shall not commit adultery. The commandment, while inculcating marital fidelity, also speaks to the need for fidelity in every aspect of our effective lives. So do lives. you see what he's doing? Fidelity is the sign ah. of a free, mature, Fidelity. and responsible relationship, which rejects selfishness Aha. and is marked by the generous gift of self. Every heart longs for love, and all authentic love is a reflection authentic of God's love. eternal love. Our vocation to love demands that we grow in the self-knowledge born of mastering our impulses and relating to others with honesty and integrity. This is particularly true of the vocation to conjugal love as a special participation in Christ's undying love for the church. The promise of fidelity which spouses make to one another on the day of their marriage is the expression of their commitment to purify their hearts daily of all infidelity and untruth and to grow in faithful and constant union with one another and with the Lord. All right. What did he say? Not a whole lot. Did he clarify it? No. My argument is he watered it down. Did he give you a good definition of even what that uh, the fidelity means? Not really. He didn't really. Now, I don't want to be overly critical here. There was a lot of good that he said in there, by the way, when we're talking about you know, true expressions of love have nothing to do with selfishness. That's true. In fact, I've often said the opposite of love, people usually think it's hate. Not a bad answer, by the way. Not a bad answer. But by the Bible's definition, the opposite of love would be selfishness. Because love, true love, founded in Christ, centered in Christ, modeled after Christ, is a self-sacrificing love. It's a love that looks to the best interest of other people. The opposite of that is self-love. Putting myself above everyone else. That's called selfishness. If you came here looking for the quickest formula of how to wreck a marriage, because <laughs> that's why people tune into this podcast. I wonder how I can wreck my marriage. Well, here's a good way to, to run it into the rocks. Be selfish. To the extent that you are selfish is the same extent your marriage will begin to die. And the converse would be true. To the same extent that you reflect Christ-like self-sacrificing love, then your marriage will begin to heal and thrive. But don't underestimate how difficult that is. Don't underestimate how difficult it is to wrestle your sinful nature that is always only worried about me. But what about me? But what if I don't get what I want? What about my self-care time? What about my desires and my passions? I'm going to turn the world on its head for a minute for you. Your desires are not your concern. I mean, in, in a real way, we can say that, right? Your desires are not your concern. Do you trust that the Lord will look after your desires? Sure. 
If you're married, your spouse should be focused on your desires and, and you should be focused on his or hers. And to the extent that both of you are constantly trying to chase each other around with great acts of love and service, to the same extent your marriage gets stronger and stronger, trying to outdo one another in acts of love so that the husband is always thinking, what could I do that serves my wife? And the wife is always thinking, what could I do that serves the husband? And so the two are chasing each other around in a circle, lobbing grace grenades at each other, just constantly pelting each other with grace. Which is good news if you ever wanted to pelt your wife with something. <laughs> and who has it? Pelt her with grace. And if it's really hard, then wad up the grace super tight and throw it a little extra hard. <laughs> All right, let's dive into the sixth commandment then. You shall not commit adultery. Now, this is the commandment that speaks specifically about marriage. But Luther doesn't leave it for granted. Leave it for granted? You don't leave it. You take it for granted, Pastor Wells. I said it backwards. Luther doesn't take it for granted that you even know what marriage is. And boy, that's never been more applicable than today. When we're constantly wrestling with this, what, what is the defin of ma definition of marriage? Well, the Bible answers that. So I'm on now on page 81 of the Catechism. Question 66 asks, what is marriage? And here's the passages. Genesis chapter 2, the Lord God built... I love that word. He built, he crafted carefully. The Lord God built a woman from the rib that he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. This is different than what God did in creating Adam, right? Adam's made out of the dirt. What's she made out of? What's Eve made out of? Adam's rib. For this reason back in Genesis now, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and will remain united with his wife and they will become one flesh. And by the way, that term for one flesh, that is the term for sex. I told you, PG, maybe PG-13 rated episode. After marriage, when he's reunited with his wife, then they become one flesh. Then they enjoy sexual intimacy, but not before that. That, uh, that, that passage there, that first part, that the woman was made from a rib, reminds me of a, a, sort of a, I don't know, it's not a poem. Uh, maybe it's a poem. I don't know. It's something that Matthew Henry wrote. I'm going to read it to you. I thought it was, it's pretty clever. Matthew Henry, again, writes a commentary on the Bible from a long time ago. Not important. Here's what he said. The woman was made from, I'm sorry, the woman was made of a rib out of the side of Adam, not made out of his head to rule over him, nor made out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm, to be protected, and near his heart, to be beloved. Not bad, huh? Not bad. Adam's made out of dirt. Guys are made out of dirt. We could say that. Girls? Women? Eve? Eve was built from Adam's rib. Why the rib? 
I think Matthew Henry did a pretty good job saying this was supposed to be near and dear to Adam's heart. Now, don't get me wrong, by the way. I know, and all Christians know, we're not denying science. (laughs) Eve was built out of a rib, okay? The other women who have been born since then were conceived in the natural way. Adam was made out of dirt. The other men that have been born into the world were conceived in a natural way, right? We're not literally made out of dirt. Adam was. Adam was literally made out of dirt. Eve was made out of a rib. We've been conceived in the natural way. However, you could still say we're kind of made out of dirt because that's what we turn back into. All right, back to some passages here. Uh, Proverbs 18.22. The man who finds a wife finds a good thing, and he obtains favor from the Lord. And Romans 7, 2, a married woman is bound to her husband by law as long as he is alive. But if he dies, she is released from this law regarding her husband. And by the way, we'd say the same would apply to him. You're married for life. So what are these passages showing us? They're showing us that marriage is this very, very unique relationship that God gives you as a gift. It's very unique in that you will share this relationship with one person until either the end of your life or their life. So this is really a one-of-a-kind relationship that God is establishing. In fact, the Catechism says as much. It says this, Marriage is a one-of-a-kind relationship that God established when he first created Adam and Eve. In marriage, a man and woman leave their fathers and mothers and form a new family unit. Under a solemn promise, they join their lives together for as long as they live. You know, I've heard people talking about, you know, um, she's joining his family or he's joining her family in marriage. You don't just marry the one, you marry the whole family. Okay, I get what they're saying. There's a lot of other people involved. you got a, you got a whole family unit that's kind of mixed in there with in-laws, etc. But actually what's happening? He's not joining her family and she's not joining his family. They're starting a new family. This is God's design. This is how he established for children to be brought in the world, for families to be created. It happens when a man and a woman get married and have children. Now, whether or not they have children, that's, that's a separate discussion. But the minute they get married, a man and a woman get married, that is a new family. That is a new family. Now, we're going to get into um, what does God say in the Sixth Commandment, specifically about the, let's say, the sexual issues that face us today. What about the issue of homosexuality and things like that? We'll get into that yet. That's coming up. So don't worry. We'll answer that. But we can note here in these passages that established marriage, one man, one woman. So no polygamy. And by the way, you might have read in the Old Testament about all these guys that have multiple wives. Yeah, that was wrong then too. That was never God's design. God did not make for Adam two or three wives. He made him one wife. So God is excluding from the definition of marriage unity, let's say marriages of the same gender, 
And he's excluding, what would you call it? Polygamy, that's the word. Did I already say that word? I meant polygamy. <laughs> God excludes that. Okay, now, what is there a process here then for one man and one woman to be joining together? Should this be done, you know, quietly and in private? No, it shouldn't. And we'll have some exceptions to that rule, but let's read first what the Catechism says. I'm on page 82. Uh, the Catechism that I'm reading um, does a pretty good job of giving us some good devotional thoughts or kind of added material. So on page 82, we get this little section called A Closer Look. And here's the title of the one article here. Marriage is a public declaration. Here's what it says. In our society, a man and a woman enter into marriage by declaring their commitment to each other in a public ceremony. They publicly speak their promises in front of a pastor or an official who is authorized by the government to perform weddings. Witnesses are present as well. For Christians, this public ceremony is a clear statement that the man and woman are making a commitment to each other for life. This lifelong commitment is at the heart of God's plan for marriage. Until this lifelong commitment is openly declared, which in our society happens through an official ceremony, Christians honor God by refraining from the sexual relationship. Remember that, and we'll read this later in, the, in this commandment, God forbids even a hint, even a hint of sexual immorality among his people. And by the way, this is so common. Sexual immorality is probably the most common issue that humanity has faced since the fall into sin. I mean, you just think about what was the first time what was the first thing, rather, that happened when Adam and Eve fall into sin? Do you remember? You have to go back to Genesis and read it. They eat the fruit. And what's the very thing they realize? They were naked. Which is a stark departure from what we had heard earlier in the creation story when the man and his wife were naked and they felt no shame. There was no shame in their nakedness. There was no shame in their sexual, uh, their sexual relationship together. But what's the first thing that happens after the fall into sin? Oh, we're naked. We got to cover up. And from since then, from then on, every single society has struggled and failed in this commandment specifically. Well, in all the commandments, but in this one very openly. And in this one, we would even say very proudly. Boy, we are so arrogant in the 21st century about what's going on in our sexual relationships together. Did you hear that noise in the background, by the way? Like, out of nowhere, the speaker for my computer just decides to do a thing. So sorry if you heard little R2-D2 beeping in the background there. This commandment we love to break because we think it's fun. Our sinful nature, I should say, thinks it's fun. We, we just love sexual immorality. But this commandment specifically... We love to shove in God's face and in other people's faces too. And there were times in history when the same thing had happened. Remember that 
Sodom and Gomorrah were very proud of their sexual immorality too. Go ahead and read that. See how it turned out for them. And then remember, the same God then is the same God today. Okay, back into the catechism. Page 82, we're talking about getting married. What's the process? There's a public declaration so that everybody would know. This is my wife. This is my husband. We will be together as a family until one of us dies. That is a very important public declaration. I envy the generations gone by. They would make a much bigger deal out of that. There would be newspaper uh, announcements. Even in my day, I think when I got married back in the uh, mid-2000s, should I say my marriage date on here? I know what it is. Honey, if you're listening, I know. I know how many years we've been married. But even when we got married, we still did a, a newspaper announcement. And if you ever see old newspaper clippings, maybe your grandma or grandpa have a cutout of when they got married. Even they'll say things in there like, this is what we had for supper, and here's who the bridesmaids were. And you know they were just very much more in detail about that. The public announcements were way more important. Uh, and way better done, I should say. I'll say it that way. Okay, so you've got this public declaration. Now, how about an engagement? Well, let me read from the catechism, engagement. Before the actual marriage takes place, a man and a woman have already made a promise to each other, the, the promise to get married. We often refer to that as the engagement Christian couples will give serious, prayerful consideration to their relationship before making that promise. Breaking any promise involves sin. Breaking the promise to get married inflicts deep emotional pain on another person and affects his or her future in a significant way. Christians don't wish to harm another person or cause such pain. The agreement to marry another is made only after a person is thoroughly convinced of his or her own desire to marry. Engagement and getting engaged is not something that should be done with a cavalier attitude. The purpose of an engagement is not to really, really start to think about whether or not you want to be married. No, that you should have already done that. The purpose of engagement is really just to make preparations for the wedding. Now, let's be clear. To be engaged is not the same as being married. So all the same standards apply. No sex outside of marriage means no sex even during engagement. You're not married yet. And here's just some personal advice for you and if you're going to counsel your children eventually. First of all, be very choosy about who you will spend your life with. This is probably the biggest decision you will ever make in your life is who you marry. So be very careful of who you agree to spend the rest of your life with. I mean, that almost should go without saying, but we're going to say it anyways. Be very careful about choosing your life partner. Secondly, have a short engagement. That's personal advice. Have a short engagement. There's not really a reason to have a very long, prolonged engagement where you're going a year, two years, three years. Keep it as short as possible. Now, I 
that's general. I'm painting with a broad brush there. You know, don't shortchange yourself. Don't stress yourself out trying to make wedding preparations and get married in a week. But hey, if you want to, go for it. It's not what I'm suggesting necessarily. I'm just saying make your engagement short. Why? Because you've promised to spend your life together. Why do you need a lot more time? All your deliberations should have been done by that point. And finally, it doesn't take all that long to plan for a wedding. Now, there's exceptions to that rule, and I get that. If you've got a venue you really want to use and it's booked up for six to eight months, whatever, then I get I get it. I get it. But generally, have as short of an engagement as possible because by prolonging that, you're really just kind of inviting temptation into your relationship, either to a temptation to sin together or apart from each other, and that's not good. But once you've made that promise, once you've gotten engaged, that's a promise you just made to a man or a woman, and you are binding their entire life to you. Do not break that engagement. Now, I get it. Some things happen, and there are for, there's forgiveness for that sin too. But remember when we were talking, this would have been back in the first commandments. Uh, th- this would have been in the second commandment. I think we covered it in the second commandment. Don't make a whole lot of promises. Because when you make a promise, you are by default predicting the future. And if you want to hear that conversation, go back and listen to the earlier episodes and refresh your memory on that. But this is one area where you should make that promise. And as with any promise that a Christian makes, you keep that promise. There is untold and difficult emotional damage and baggage that can result from a broken engagement. Don't do that to somebody else. When you make the promise to marry them, then marry them. And the only thing that should get in the way of that promise would be something uh, huge. (laughs) You know, uh, it, it should take a mountain, really, to break that promise. All right, let's uh, dive back into the catechism a little bit more. Uh, Page 82, question 67 asks us this. What blessings does God intend to give through marriage? I mean, that question, the way it's worded, even has an implication there. You know what's implied there? Not even applied. It's explicitly stated. God has given you marriage for a blessing to you. How many people talk about marriage that way anymore? It's the only legal form of slavery. I've heard that. People referring to their wife as a ball and chain. Well, that's imprisonment. <laughs> that's not a blessing. So God has given you marriage as a blessing. So what are the blessings that God wants to give to you? Well, he tells us, Genesis 2.18, remember, this is right before he creates Eve and gives Eve to Adam as a wife. Here's what he says. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper who is a suitable partner for him. So what's the first blessing that God gives you in marriage? It is companionship. You have somebody to share your life with. You have somebody to share your experiences with. 
You have somebody to build new experiences with. Those who aren't married for one reason or another, and some have remained single not even by choice, but haven't found their their life partner, their marriage partner yet. You know what they say is the hardest? The loneliness and the quiet. God has a good blessing for you in marriage, in companionship, having that deep partnership, that deep friendship. And by the way, yes, your spouse should be your friend. That is part of the dating experience. As you date, your your explicit goal is to figure out, will this person make a good marriage partner for me or not? And as you're dating, you are building your relationship, your friendship together. Which is, by the way, another really, 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 really good and practical reason to avoid sex before marriage. Because even humanly speaking, things get really complicated in a relationship once that physical element is injected into that relationship. Those of you who have been there, you can, you can testify that what I tell you is true. If you jump in bed together before you're married, did the relationship get easier or more complicated? I bet it got more complicated, didn't it? Exactly. God has, has a design here. Inside of marriage, sex is a wonderful tool for married people. Outside of marriage, it tends to make things more complicated. Which, by the way, is the second point of marriage, 1 Corinthians 7. Because of sexual sins, each man is to have his own wife, and each woman is to have her own husband. The husband is to fulfill his obligation to his wife, that's sex. And likewise, the wife to her husband, that's sex. God says so. Husband, you owe it to your wife. Wife, you owe it to your husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body. Ooh, that's a big one, huh? We even covered this in the fifth commandment. My body, my choice. Well, we noted there, actually God owns our bodies. He's the one that made them. And what does it say here? The wife does not have authority over her body. Her husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his body. The wife does. But if they do not have self-control, they should marry because it is better to marry than to burn with desire. God is the one who created us as sexual beings. People have a hard time realizing that. I, there was a, there's a pastoress out there, uh, Nadia Web, Boltz, Web, Webster, Weber, whatever, uh, just a really, really messed up individual. But she claims that sex, that the church is against sex because it's competition. And I should probably look up that quote or something because I'm probably not being fair to her. But that's the gist of the quote. She couldn't be more wrong. We understand from the scriptures that it is God who built us as sexual creatures with all the parts to go along with it. This is something he wants for us. And he has given us a good, beautiful, healthy way to take care of those sexual needs. It's called marriage. Marriage. And so Paul here in 1 Corinthians, Paul who, by the way, was never married, he says, it's better to marry than to burn with desire. 
So God gives you the gift of marriage, number one, for companionship, to, to share a life together. And number two, we could say for chastity, for sexual happiness. This is something God wants for you. Dear wife, he, God, has given you your husband's body to enjoy. Dear husband, he, God, has given you your wife's body to enjoy. As part of your self-sacrificial act of being husband and wife, enjoy each other's bodies together. That is a good gift from the Lord. Now, if we wanted to back up in a little bit into the fifth commandment and say, and by the way, take care of your body so that your wife can enjoy it. Take care of your body so that your husband can enjoy it. That is a good reason just to practice good health, good hygiene. Because your body is for your husband. Your body is for your wife. Take care of it so that it is presentable and enjoyable. That is part of your love that you show to your spouse, the way you take care of your body. Which again, if we want to back up a little bit to the fifth commandment, which again precludes a completely vain way to look at your body. We don't exercise for vanity's sake. Because finally, there are parts of my body that are only presentable to my wife and vice versa, right? Another good reason to practice, what do you call it when a woman dresses, right? Um, uh, uh. Modesty. I was going to say morality. That, yes, also practice morality. But modesty. Dress modestly. Women, especially. This is a big one in 2021. Oh, my goodness. It, is, it hasn't been 2021 for almost two years. Man, COVID screwed all that up, didn't it? My timeline is all off. This is a big one for 2023 and now almost 2024. Dress modestly. That is part of your way, women, to show respect not only to God who created your body, but showing respect to your husband. And, of course, vice versa for men, too, although that tends to be less of a, uh, an issue nowadays uh, for men. But the same would apply. Dress modestly. It shows your respect for your husband and your wife and for God. So God gives you companionship in marriage. That's a good blessing. God gives you sexual happiness in marriage. That's a good blessing. And there's a third one here. God blessed them and said, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. What's he saying? Have babies. (laughs) Have babies and have lots of them. And remember... If you're, if you're worried about like these financial ramifications of having kids and lots of kids. And by the way, there are some financial ramifications. Be willing to pay those. But remember, God can take care and God does take care of his families. Your family is God's family. Does God neglect his family? Absolutely not. Can God bring you the resources so that you could fill your quiver, to use Bible speak, uh, with lots and lots of children? Of course he can. God will make sure you have enough. And don't worry about the carbon footprint and all that stuff that people talk about with having kids. If there's one thing to use earthly resources on, it's in having kids. 
Don't worry about it. God will take care of that. Have kids. Have lots of kids. And trust the Lord to take care of your family. Now, there are some, by the way, that cannot have children. God has decided that they will be a couple, a husband and wife, without their own biological children for whatever reason. That sometimes is the Lord's will. You can embrace that as difficult as it is if you are childless and would like to have a child. Our heart, my heart goes out to you. I understand that good desire. And you are chasing a blessing that the Lord would have you enjoy. But it is his will that you do not have children, at least not yet. Keep it in your prayers. Continue to pray about it. And if there are other options that, like adoption, maybe even some acceptable fertility treatments, we'll talk about that coming up in this, uh, in this um, commandment as well, then pursue those. Pursue those. But, the norm, by, but by the normal course of things, God intends us to have the blessing of children. So let's wrap it up with this thought from the commandment. Through marriage, God blesses a husband and a wife with companionship, the opportunity to express love in a very special and intimate way in their sexual relationship and the possibility of children. And then there's also this feature, by the way, before we depart. Your marriage is an experiential, something you can experience, an experiential picture of Christ's love for you. Now, don't press that too far. But you get to live out and experience the self-sacrificing love that your Savior showed to you. He gives you the opportunity to show that same love in your marriage to your spouse. So that in the same way, that you know and love and revel in the fact that your God loved you so much that he gave up his life to purchase your soul. With that very same knowledge, God invites you to enjoy the blessing of the relationship he's given to you with your spouse. And trust him. It's a good thing. My friends, I can't tell you how good it is to be back with you. I will shake off the rust and be back with you again one week from today. Meantime, if you keep missing me, podcast at twicethelutheran.org. I can't wait to see you again. <laughs>